Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. My guest today is Ani Dasgupta. Ani is the Global Director for WRI Ross Center for Sustainable Cities. Welcome to the show, Ani. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Ani recently returned from Quito, Ecuador, where there was a big UN Gab Fest on cities that goes by the name of Habitat 3 meets every 20 years, so this was only the third of them in 60 years, and he's also leading a uh, major research effort here at WRI that goes by the name of the World Resources Report that is produced roughly every two years, and today we're going to be talking both about Habitat 3 and the World Resources Report, but first, Ani, I have a question for those people who might think, why cities? I mean, there's a lot of problems in the world. Cities is one of the six global challenges at the core of WRI's work. Oceans isn't there at all. Why, sh why should we be working <laughs> on cities when we're not working on oceans? We should work on cities for many reasons. The most important reason is because most of us live in cities. Even today, more than 50% of population of the world live in cities. Very soon, 60, 70, nearly 70%, Six billion people, 2.5 billion more people live in cities. So it matters simply because our quality of life <laughs> depends on how good a city is, whether we can walk to our work, whether we have to be stuck in a traffic jam two and a half hours breathing fumes, whether our kids can cross the street without getting killed. That's why, it, so that's the simple reason it matters how, what kind of cities we build, because most of us will live there. So but are cities part of the problem or part of the solution? It's actually both. It's the way we are building cities today, produces 75, 80, how you count it, of greenhouse gases across the world. So if you want to meet the climate goals at all, anywhere near that, we have to build different kind of cities. We have to consume differently. And the, the other good side, this is, that's the bad side. The, the solution part, most of the GDP of the world, the productivity of the world comes from cities. 80% uh, of GDP gets created um, in, in cities large and small. So the productivity, the wealth of nations come from how cities work. So today, cities are being built in a way that actually is not meeting all these goals. It's not helping the climate or uh, creating quality of life people. But the solutions are also in the cities. The Most of the leadership, the innovation, the solution across the world we see um, comes from the city. So it's we have to find a way to actually increase the per solutions and um, uh, inventiveness of cities and kind of slowly decrease the bad habits of creating cities that are car-centric than people-centric. So the median in Quito, you did a wonderful little video. We'll link to it from the same blog that hosts this podcast. And you were so energized by the uh, ideas, the number of people, the exchange of information that was there. But I think for those of us who don't attend these events and don't experience that, I use the unkind word gab fest. I mean, what comes <laughs> out of something like Habitat 3? You what, what 10,000 people there for 10 days, something like that, discussing cities? In the end, what happens? Why does it matter? It's a bit of a gab fest. You're right about that. It is. The Habitat meetings happens every 20 years. Actually, they're very different from a lot of other UN meetings. Um, um, the organizers said there were maybe 30,000 or 40,000 people oh there. It was like a little city inside a city. It was amazing. And the, the most interesting thing, why this is different, is I think the habitats are a mix of a regular UN conference to agree on a way forward. So they are government official where there is a 
um, agreed to document that people negotiated and signed. In this case, they had already negotiated it, so there was not much of negotiation. But it's agreement among 166 countries to say, how do we go forward in cities? What kind of cities we build? Actually, I think the document itself was very progressive, um, very different from the last two. And there was probably a little bit of WRI input into that document. There was. I mean, from, from, from a long time, we've been working very closely uh, with, the, with the different parts that makes up the document and negotiation. But it's also, unlike other UN meetings, a meeting of activists, social worker, people who work on cities, the m uh, people who are community organizers. So it's also a, a forum for people who work on cities to come together. There are students there. There are people from SDI, Islam Development Federation, a big organization that works with slums across the world. So it is, it's a mix between, at one level, high-level government officials, professionals, and people like us who work on cities with many partners, and also community organizers, citizens. So it's a mix. That's why there's so many people. And that's why, when you saw me in that video, I was running from one meeting to meeting, and it's an exciting place for everyone who works on cities um, to come together and think about what are we supposed to do and how we go forward. So what's the big takeaway from Quito? When people look back in five years, and since the meeting only happens once every 20, they're presumably going to, those of you who are involved in city policy and city planning, are going to look back at this milestone or landmark event. What are they going to remember? What was the big new idea that came out of this conference? First of all, I think there's active discussion not to do it every 20 years, but do it more often. Uh, I was wondering about <laughs> that. It seems like every 20 years is like the people who remember the last conference or half of them are already retired or dead, right? There are quite a few people there who actually been to the first, second, and third. They reminded all of us they had done that. There are very few of them. But uh, uh, look, I, I think, so there is active discussion about um, doing this um, more often. I want to talk, I think there were some very good parts to Habitat and some things that I've written about myself that didn't happen that I wish would have happened. Um, so one is the actual document that got signed, um, though there was no negotiation because it wasn't negotiated, is actually has two or three very good ideas that is very very current and I'm glad it's there. One is recognition of the, um, the climate agenda, the quality of life agenda, and the uh, economy agenda as a connected outcome for cities. That's something... As WRI, we've been advocating for a long time. The cities can be seen in unidimensional. It's very clearly part of that um, document. The second document, we have been advocating, as you know, of equity, that equal cities are for everyone. That's very strongly in the document, which I'm very, very pleased about. And third, this whole idea that the economic transition that countries have to go through Cities are in the on the path of that transition. You can't transition to a more productive, more economically diverse country if the cities are not working. Now, that, to be honest, was not part of the discourse. We have been talking about it, but it's not been part of the discourse of cities, the, how economies of countries are connected to how their cities work. That has been, now this is something we've been pushed, that's actually part of it. So in many ways, the discourse itself is different, um, and it is... Historically, this has been very much connected to housing and access to housing, which also is there, but it's a moved on to a much more comprehensive view of cities. And, and what would that mean in a practical sense? Would that be reflected then in legislation or in national policy directives? Or how does something like that that sounds to me to be a little bit abstract, what, how would that be manifest in the real world? So one thing that the document uh, clearly wishes from happens, and I'm going to tell you what the stretch goal might be. So um, 
So one thing would be national governments will have a national policies to enable sustainable cities. Every country doesn't have it. Very few countries have. So one of the clear goals of this document, of these 166 countries that signed up to actually say, here, we're going to do this, how, to make a comprehensive policies for national governments to support sustainable cities. Um, because people have realized that enabling conditions for cities are very important. It's very important what cities do, but enabling conditions are very important. So that would be a clear outcome. So we, if we could figure out, agree among ourselves what a enabling policies are, what do they look like, and start asking countries whether we'll, you know, if they've done it or not, whether they already have it. The stretch goal would be, as in my view, is not only the national urban enabling policies are there, but the economic po development policies of the countries are connected to the urbanization policy, which is not something that happens often. So urban ministries do urban policies, but there is the economic development or planning ministry that does. If countries start seeing, so we are seeing this evidence of now Ethiopia recently did a policy of national development, so cities were a central part of it. So we see evidence of that happening. More countries do that. That would be a real win. I'm thinking in the U.S. we have this Department of Housing and Urban Development, but I think a lot of us, when we think of it, we sort of think about housing, right? I don't know that do you, in the United States, is there an urban policy as such that could be shifted towards more sustainable cities? No. And uh, you know, in the United States, um, the history of the United States and how it's decentralized defines what kind of policies are acceptable in the United States. So the United States would have it very difficult to say, you know, this is the kind of cities you would want. But HUD kind of plays the urban development uh, policymaking function in the United States. And HUD actually advocates in a in United States contextual way what kind of uh, policies make towards So they don't do only housing. They do economic development policies. Um, uh, sustainability policies, how can be cities more sustainable. The transport uh, secretary pushes and, and advocates much more sustainable transport. So these coordinated ways um, that the United States government plays that function. So it doesn't have to be, you don't have to have a urban development ministries. It's just that this function can be distributed in a different way in different countries. This touches on something that's been in the back of my mind in my own travels. It seems to me that the U.S. model uh, of being very car-centric, of investing heavily in highways that enable people to get out of the cities and into the suburbs and back and forth has been quite destructive around the world in that people think, well, the United States is a big, rich country, and so our cities want to look like American cities. And then you know, I certainly see this in China, to a certain extent in India. Um, is there a di dialogue around this notion that the American model is, in fact, peculiar and perhaps not very well-suited uh, even to the United States and certainly to other places? Absolutely, there is a dialogue. Is the dialogue loud enough? People like me argue, no. It needs to be much more of that dialogue. Um, for United States, this, po this policy has produced sprawling cities, um, cities that are dispersed, and NCE, we did a paper a few years back that- NCE, the new climate the new economy, economy work. Economy work. Yeah. Um, they did a paper that uh, argued that the United States uh, loses a trillion dollar for that kind of development. So people try to quantify that. It's actually much more disastrous when poorer countries that don't have the infrastructure or the resources emulate this and just get the car part and not the infrastructure part. So what's happening in China, for example, um, what's happening in India, what's happening in uh, in Manila, Jakarta, these are, di these are produced, this car-centric development of these cities have been producing results that are as you know from Delhi, the 40% of kids in Delhi 
have asthma, 40% of children directly correlated with air quality that directly correlated with uh, motorization or transportation. Uh, and single vehicle use, I mean, single car, I mean, car use uh, more than just motorization. Look, there are a billion cars in the world today. Most of them are in cities. If you don't do anything in the next 35 years, there'll be three billion cars in the world. If you have three billion cars in the world, there is no other way, and if you don't change the fuel and things, it'll be six-degree world, just by that. A six-degree world. For those in uh, climate land, they know that this is basically uh, nearly uninhabitable uh, planet. So in it Paris last year, the goal was, when we began the conference, the goal was to get to a two-degree world, two-degree warmer world, right? That's pre-industrial average pre-industrial temperature. Average. Two and degrees they agreed that it would be better to get to a one-and-a-half-degree world, higher than the pre-industrial what I'm saying is, if you just just grow cars like we are growing today and we don't do anything about it, that itself will get us to a six-degree world. The simple point I'm making is there is no way not to change cities, not to have get away from car dependency if you want to get to a climate goal that we all want to achieve for. I want to switch to the World Resources Report um, that you led. We heard today from Victoria Beard, who's the research director and did most of the heavy lifting on that, but you provided the overall intellectual guidance. And I'm going to take a stab at paraphrasing the key idea, which is that more equal cities are more dynamic, they're more competitive, they're greener, and that therefore city planners and mayors should invest in making sure that core services, affordable housing, transportation, water, sanitation is available to the what you call the urban underserved, the people who are not in the upper middle class, as it were. Is that the big takeaway? That is the big takeaway. It's the central takeaway. It's is not just about the underserved, about how does the city function. And the point I was making earlier, that the city's outcome is so interconnected between how people live whether the climate is protected, whether the city is produ- productive, that for historically we have thought about these things as a separate things, separate groups of experts thinking about the economy versus climate. But the central point we're making for a city is a very close-knit system. And m- more we focus on cities in the global south, where most of the urbanization will take place, the scarcity of services is a much bigger point than, than we actually realize. So just to illustrate the point, I mean, in rich countries, to get to a better climate outcome, we have to basically rationalize use. So everyone has services. How do you make services so that they're less carbon footprint? But in poorer countries, it's actually not everyone doesn't have services. So how do you get them services in a way to get to higher quality life without the footprint? The opportunity of doing things are very different. Um, if I, if I have another minute to elaborate on this, I want to give you two examples of how this, what we mean by this. So if you take the city of Dhaka, which is, which is about, about, from the north and south Dhaka, it's about 15 to 20 million people who live there, very large city in Bangladesh, which is gifted with fresh water. Bangladesh has more rivers than you can count. Um, yet city of Dhaka, in 2%, people estimate 2% of human waste in city of Dhaka gets treated. Now, most of the time we say, oh, that's, you know, rich people have their sanitation toilets, and it's a poor people problem. But what does happen when only 2% gets treated is that all the 98% human waste goes to surface water and pollutes it. So every surface water in Dhaka today is polluted, so that Dhaka today, which is a gifted freshwater country and city, actually 
pumps water from aquifers, pumping so much that it's getting brackish. What does that mean? That every kiloliter of water that anyone in the city uses, not the, just the poor people, actually has to pay more now to do so. That's how, as, as you can see, one simple example of not having services and sanitation connects to the productivity of the city because everyone's paying more for water. And also, it is connected very much to the environment because now all the water is polluted and becoming brackish. I can give you a similar example of transportation in African cities. We did a study, actually the World Bank did a study that we have, we actually worked with them. They showed the transportation cost is so high in some cities in Africa that the poor people can't get to work. What does that mean? That poor people only can get to work, that is they can walk to or get them a tutu, the informal taxi. This actually results in the labor market not having a mobility, and they showed the labor cost in the cities, which you would assume because they're poorer cities, would be cheaper than Latin America and Asia. But yet, these cities show the African labor cost is higher. This is how lack of service affects productivity of cities. So that is the connection we're trying to establish to this work. I want to wrap up by coming back to Quito and Habitat 3. I was looking, you wrote a blog before it began, and you had three measures by which you are going to determine its success. And I'm wondering, now that it's over, if you think it was successful or not. The first says, a very clear implementation agenda and a monitoring process. Did you all walk away from Quito with those things in hand? The documents people sign has a monitoring embedded process that in four years people will report um, um, to about the progress they're making. So we were happy about that, as they say. Uh, it, you know, the details is actually, the success of this in the details, how, how will it be done, that wasn't agreed. What wasn't agreed as much as I would have liked is an implementation agenda. I, I had imagined, given that the document was already signed or agreed to, they would spend, we would spend much more time on the implementation agenda, which I think there were a lot of discussion, but it wasn't as concrete as I would have liked to. The second one, national commitments to developing policies that empower cities. So the national policy was part of the document they signed, um, and um, and on signed the signed document looks exactly what I expected. I think the again the proof of the pudding would be national government doing it and us the world measuring success because accountability of this, just like the Paris Agreement, is a critical part of this any kind of any kind of document like this moving forward. Saved hardest for last. You saved hardest for last when you wrote the blog. Financing plans to back up the solutions that emerge in in Quito. Is there going to be money? I don't think that discussion, there was, I was part of many of the finances. There was not concrete discussions of separate pots of money on this. I must also point out that there was a very clear um, cautiousness of people not creating different silos after the climate meeting or different indicators, different pots of money. There was a, there was a theme of bringing things together. But I do not think this meeting actually resulted in clear buckets of money for a specific thing, and that was left to be done later. Ani, to be continued. It's a great pleasure to have you as a colleague. Uh, one of the interesting things working here at WRI uh, and being exposed to this work on cities is we're in a city. And <laughs> every day I travel through this city and I look at the lessons from our work and from work being done elsewhere on what constitutes a sustainable city. In some ways, Washington doesn't do too badly. In other ways, we have a long, long way to go. So I guess you must feel that way everywhere you go. You know, the Absolutely. cities are uh, right in front of us, in our face, as That's the best part of it. We get to live in what we work on. Uh, that's the pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's my pleasure.
This is the World Resources Institute podcast. My guest has been Ani Dasgupta. He's the global director of WI Ross Center for Sustainable Cities. I'm Lawrence McDonald. Tune in next time for another interview on WRI's work. Thank you.